Jet lag's a beautiful thing. No, it's not. No, it's not. Hi, I'm George Techmanchub here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson for another Easton podcast, which Jay will figure out the number of. You're back after a long stretch on the road, and you've got a little bit of downtime, and then you're headed back straight out. No, there's no downtime. Yeah. No, because you got work to do. i got a lot of things to do. Yeah. So. Let's recap. Um, last time we talked, you had just gotten back from somewhere, and we're headed to U.S. Nationals. Yeah. And so uh, U.S. Nationals, uh, wow, a trying event. Yeah, it was uh, very windy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, work your microphone just a little closer. Yeah, there you go. That um, Brady Ellison texted me and said that he was holding from the edge of the bale to the black to get him in the middle at 70. What were you doing in in more mixed conditions from what I understand um, in your in your category by the time you guys were shooting? I pulled out a thumb button. I punched the hell out of it. It's about all you could times. do. What else can you do? Nothing. You know this. Uh, this might be the the uh, one of the most amazing achievements for our friend Matt Stutzman, who has. I mean, you know, with with uh, all the challenges that Matt deals with, you know, not having arms, you could argue in that condition he actually had a bit of advantage, being basically down on the ground and shooting with his legs. You know, I uh, I thought about trying to shoot with my legs but we don't make an arrow long enough yeah matt's probably like a 30 inch inseam uh-huh. and i'm a 36 so yeah kudo arrow yeah. might do yeah i have to shoot about 30 pounds might yeah. not work out so fantastic performance from matt stutzman congratulations to uh to matt for that uh stunning victory at usa nationals that was yeah he shot well all weekend brady ellison also shot well winning both u.s nationals and the u.s open so uh brady congratulations to him uh, just a good performance overall, uh, in spite of tough conditions. I heard the venue was pretty good, but I I understand they're not going back. Yeah, we um, no scheduling conflicts or something like that. Yeah, so we're not going so, back. Well, that's too bad. Well, at any rate, it was uh, a successful event overall. And then from directly from U.S. Nationals, you found yourself headed to Berlin. Yep. I understand that. Um, you know, from the photos you sent and from everything else, this had to have been maybe the most spectacular venue on the on the agenda this year. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, you know, it's fascinating history, whether it's good or bad, it's history, and uh, I enjoyed learning about that stuff. And and uh, to shoot right outside of the Olympic Stadium, where where Jesse Owen got his gold medal. Yeah, where Hitler hosted the Olympics uh, was was uh, really fascinating. Yeah, from a from an historic standpoint. That was the first modern Olympic Games in a number of ways. It was the first Games to to feature a torch run from Marathon Greece, or from excuse me, from Olymp from uh, Delphi to uh, the Cauldron in Berlin. That's the first time that was actually staged. It's not the first time a Cauldron was lit, but it's the first time the torch run was conducted, and. Uh, you know that set the stage for for spectacular opening events and ceremonies and stuff, and you know just the history of the place is tremendous and uh, you know um, a bit dark but tremendous history anyway. So, yeah, you know. Yep. Got to go see the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Uh, we shot outside of uh, or what's left left of it, I guess. I yeah. Mean, it's just a, a yep. symbolic chunk of it there, right? Yep. I guess the the place where we shot the finals was a train depot. 
Oh. That was used to haul people to concentration camps. Oh, my. So now it's a soccer field. Well, there's a. That's just a grim past, but a bright future. And, uh, you know, I think it's a a great um, bit of history. I'll probably try to go next year. I had too much going on, but uh, some places I want to visit in in that city. So, all right, moving on um, to the the outcome of the medal rounds there. We had uh, Elmo taking his first gold medal at a World Cup. Yeah, he drew the bow back all 15 times. <laughs> yeah, he got, he the got win. All, all the shots off against Stefan Hansen. So Elmo winning that, um, Stefan Hansen taking second, and you and Braden Galantine um, found each other in the bronze medal final. Yep. Uh, any any Anything to say? Uh, no, we shot pretty good. I yeah. just missed my last arrow. Braden seems to be... Seemed, uh, it held too well. Braden seems to be um, getting it back, you know? Yeah, he's figuring out how to win matches again. And he's now the number one ranked USA archer. You are the number two ranked USA archer. Yeah, that's all whatever. That mixes up pretty quick. So Yeah. Compound women, Sarah Sonicson for Denmark, taking the gold medal. Yassim Bostan, the former junior champion from Turkey, uh, taking silver. And I think that might be her high finish for a World Cup. Uh, probably, yep. And then uh, Sanne Dilat from Netherlands who we haven't seen too much in the past, but is starting to make her move onto the boards uh, around Europe and and has won her first bronze medal at a World Cup. Compound men's team, USA bringing the smackdown. That's you, Braden Galantine, and Chris Schaff. Congratulations on the gold medal. Yeah, we we all had moments of shooting bad, but never at the same time. That's how you win a gold. A little bit of revenge there because your your opponent was the powerful team from Denmark. And no revenge. I mean, it doesn't matter who it is. We're, we we expect to win regardless, so more like we, we, we feel like uh, we didn't necessarily get revenge. We played our hand how we expect to. So you guys have come up against each other enough times now that it's almost familiar. Yeah, like, I mean, real, realistically, you're not looking at your opponent going, ooh, it's so-and-so. Like, we're trying to shoot a 240, and conditions rarely allow that. You know, obviously it's never happened before. But um, was it a little more sheltered in the uh, the train yard there? It was rainy and windy. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. So we, I mean, we're just trying to shoot the best score we can. Doesn't matter who it is. You know, it's all about uh, making the best out of the conditions you got. Yeah, but the who it is was a pretty good who it is. It's Martin Damsbo and Andreas Darum, and uh, of course Stefan Hansen, the reigning champion of the world. So that was a yep. pretty solid team, and you guys uh, decisively. Took the gold medal there. Yeah. It'll matter more in Mexico. And even then, it really won't. Team rounds are kind of like what it's like for fun, you know? Team rounds don't really matter. Bronze medal went to the home team, Germany. Yeah. Bit of a, was there a good crowd? Was there a, a yeah, lot of, there was quite a few people there, actually, even for a rainy day. Yeah. So pretty solid there. You know, for archery, let's say. Uh-huh. I mean, that means like three, 400 people. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Okay. I think I could have pulled more for a six a.m. practice. Let's college. let's face it. The World <laughs> Cup World Cup is really set up around TV. It really is. And, yeah. You know. I mean. You know, it's great if you're a spectator and you're there and you're enjoying it. But the reality is, it's really oriented toward television. All the sight lines, everything is set up for TV. Yeah. No, this was the first time I've seen actual spectators at a World Cup. So that was pretty cool. Great, mm-hmm. great crowd. They really came from all over. Uh, Germany and, and other countries just to watch archery. Awesome. So 
Compound women's team, congratulations to the United States team of Cassidy Cox, Paige Gore, and Lexi Keller. Bringing home the gold medal. They took out GBR, which uh, which has the veteran archer, Lucy O'Sullivan, along with Lucy Mason and Hope Greenwood. And then um, the third place team was Denmark with uh, Erica Damsbo and Tanya Jensen and Sarah Sonnickson. So uh, solid performances all around. Compound mixed team, uh, Braden Galantine and Paige Gore of the United States taking that gold medal. And then uh, Julio Fierro of Mexico and your wife, Linda Ochoa Anderson, taking a silver medal for Mexico. Pretty uh, great performance from Linda. Yeah, she's shooting really well right now. Yeah. I know she was disappointed to lose in the bronze match, but she's putting herself up there more more often. Would she have gotten enough points if she'd won the bronze to make the final? Um, No. If she'd won her semi, she would have made the final. The final in Rome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stefan Hansen and Tanya Jensen taking the bronze for Denmark. So um, all around... Good performance. Now that uh, leads to the discussion of who did qualify for the finals in Rome. For the compound women, number one qualifier, Sarah Sonicson of Denmark. Sarah Lopez of Colombia is ranked second. Sarah Preels of Belgium is ranked third. Andreas Marcos of, um, Andrea Marcos, excuse me, of Spain is ranked fourth. Tanya Jensen is fifth. Uh, Parisa Baracci of Iran is Sixth, tied with Yassim Bostan of Turkey for the uh, last non-endemic slot. That is, uh, yeah, obviously uh, Italy is going to get an archer in the uh, in the final there because of the host country. So that is the outcome for the compound women. For the compound men, uh, Steve, this is uh, certainly a moment of congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, you ranked second after two years in a row being around the bubble. Uh, to make the cut and just missing out I think last year by by a couple points so now you're second to Stefan Hansen of Denmark then yourself Steve Anderson Braden Galantine is third Mike Schlusser is fourth Demir Emigakli of Turkey Elmo is also tied with Mike Schlusser for points so uh, they share a fourth place tie Rio Wild of the United States gets bumped because no, no country can have more than two otherwise Rio would have been uh in sixth place, but uh, unfortunately, because of the uh, the two-only rule, Rio gets bumped. P.J. Deloche of France is seventh, and Andreas Darum of Denmark is eighth. If I had to be a guessing man, I would guess the Italians might put Sergio Pagni in mm. the uh, men's compound slot, but there could be others. I think there will be some political uh, motives in the way of that. All right, I guess we'll just leave that to whatever turns up, turns up, and we'll see what happens there. With that in mind, looking at the recurve men. Performance for the recurve men at this event was uh, characteristically uh, dominated by the Koreans. And, you know, you had Kim Woo-jin and Kim Jong-ho in the final round, the gold medal round, and Kim Woo-jin... You know, yeah. has been shooting strong, and and he took the uh, the gold medal from his teammate. You know, n- neither of those guys shot as well as we uh, kind of expected them to, given the conditions. But uh, they didn't shoot bad at any point, really. So it was interesting to watch, though. Yeah. 
Crispin Duenas, our good friend from Canada, is the bronze medal winner from this event. It's his first, I think it's his first outdoor World Cup medal. At a World Cup, maybe, yeah. For an individual. And so Crispin taking the bronze medal. That was a good performance for Crispin. Yep. Yeah, he shot well. Um, for the recurve women, uh, Kang Che Young of Korea taking the gold. And Alejandra Valencia of Mexico taking the silver. Yeah, and that one was a. Uh... I think there was a lot of pressure on both on that match. It was, it was uh, probably left a lot to be desired for both of them. But um, you know that's what happens. You got to get in the in the gold medal final to get some experience. And sometimes you go and you you lay an egg, but uh, always uh, opportunity to better yourself for the next time. Strong finish for Veronica Marchenko taking the bronze medal, archer from Ukraine. Yeah, over. Uh, the gold medalist over Miss Che. Yeah, yeah. So that was a solid performance from Veronica. The Ukraine women are tough at times, and uh, she proved that. So for the recurve men's teams, France taking a, a you know kind of coming back on the world stage. Yeah, they um, taking they, the gold. They, we were watching that one pretty close because there were some moments where you thought it was going to come off the rails, but. Um, that last end, they uh, they pumped a few good ones. To that, it was a shoot-off, right? It was a shoot-off. Yeah. If I remember right. Really good shooting. So uh, that was up against the, the strong team of Netherlands. So you had um, Thomas Chirol of France and our friend Pierre Blihon and uh, the champion of the world in field archery from Val d'Isere, Jean-Charles Valadant, the Olympic silver medalist, and um, the, the vice champion of the Olympic Games, as the French call him. And uh, that was a good performance. Netherlands was second, and Netherlands' team is nothing to sneeze at. It's Chef Van den Berg, Rick Van den Over, and the winner of the second World Cup, no, sorry, of the first World Cup stage, which was Steve Weiler of uh, Netherlands. Korea taking an uncharacteristic bronze. Yeah, they really struggled in the team round on the men's side this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Oh Jin Hyuk, our good friend who just had his birthday, and um, Kim Woo Jin and Im Dong Hyung continuing his comeback to the national team but uh, bronze medal for Korea not not necessarily a celebration I don't think they're happy to have only taken the bronze recurve women's team was Korea with the gold medal Miss Chang Choi Misun and Kang Che Young uh, taking that gold medal um, noteworthy person not on that list of three was Kibo Bay who was there right yeah, she was there, so she must not be... Uh, well, she didn't finish high enough to be on the team, uh, in the team round. I, I don't think that's how they do it. Typically, they they take their world championship team. So I, I don't know there. Maybe she's not going to world championships. I thought she was. I thought she was, too. Well, then again, you know, we saw her being treated for uh, for shoulder issues. Um, who knows? I mean, yeah, I you know. know. We'll see. That's one of those things that'll turn up when it turns up. Silver medal, Mexico with a great performance. Uh, Mariana Avicia, Ida Roman, and Alejandra Valencia taking the gold medal for, uh, sorry, the silver medal for Mexico and uh, the same team, of course, from the London Games of 2012. And then for the bronze medal, the Russian team uh, with a couple of uh, newcomers, relatively speaking, Tatiana Biltrikova and Sayana Tsirempilova. And then the veteran Natalia Erdenieva taking the bronze for Russia. 
For the mixed teams, um, for the recurves, we had Choi Misun and Kim Woo Jin of Korea taking the gold medal over the Japanese team of Takaharu Furukawa and Ren Hayakawa. Yeah. And I'm sure they were happy to be in that final. Oh, they obliterated them. I mean, we uh, we kind of booed uh, Kim Woo Jin. He missed his last arrow. Otherwise, he would have been clean. So we, we, we gave him a little trouble, you know, afterwards. But what do you mean he missed it? Like off the bail? Like he shot a nine. Oh, missed it. <laughs> it's not a nine. It's not A miss is not a nine. <laughs> in, uh, in the compound <laughs> but, world, it is. Okay, but this is yeah. a recurve match. So. Right, but when we say, oh, I missed, that means you shot a nine. Well, you guys have a different standard. Right. And Mac Brown and Brady Elson took the bronze for the USA. Yeah. So great performance there. Coming up, what's uh, what do you got next on your calendar? Um, SoCal World Cup Final, Texas Shootout, World Championships. SoCal takes place at the Easton Center in San Diego. Yep. So that's uh, f- you know familiar ground. Should be a good event. Eh. Keaton and the team down there always putting on a good event, though. Yeah. If you like a good first, if you like your practice ends to be nice and calm, and then your your tournament ends to be about fifteen to twenty mile an hour winds, that's a great place to have a tournament. No, that's a function of the coastal proximity. Yeah, you know what are you going to do? That's Not the way shoot it there. I understand your point about that field, but you know I really like it down there. It's uh, it's just a great overall facility that we have uh, that our foundation has built. You know, in that location. Fantastic place for archery. Yeah, it's pretty nice. So we've got a whole bunch of uh, listener questions that have come up in the last few days um, on our Eastern Target Archery Facebook page. And um, I, what do you say we jump in? Let's do it. Let's do it. Robert Holder. I'm going to go to Robert's question first because uh, he notes that we skipped his question last time. But, you know, here's the thing. I actually meant to focus on that question. I have no idea why it got skipped because uh, I remember being very intentive about wanting to answer that question last time. Robert's question is, is there a good way you'd recommend to simulate shooting 70 meters when you don't have access to an outdoor range to practice at that distance? So I'm going to pontificate about this just a skosh and then Steve can kick in your thoughts. Uh, my, my thoughts are the big issue is angle for a recurve shooter. You want to get your body angle similar to what would be happening. So get up close, set up a target so that you're at the same angle with your aperture as you would be at 70, you know, and yeah. and work on that. And then, you know, yep. shoot at small dots or something that are, you know, maybe thumbtack size dot up there if you're 10 yards away. Yeah, if you could shoot at 20 yards but have, uh, you know, just take a, when you're shooting 70 meters, take a measurement stabilizer to floor – uh, and then you can try to replicate that at at twenty yards. It's tough for a lot of people, though, yeah. Steve. Because you'd have to have it up at the ceiling. You're well. You'd have to have it pretty high yeah. for some people, like yourself, for example. If you were to try to do that, the thing would end up about three feet above your typical target bail. Yeah. So depending on your poundage and everything else, that's why I said get close. Because mm-hmm. if you get close, then you can get the angle. And so, Robert, that that's the number one thing. The second thing is. You know, it's hard to just shoot blank bail and get any benefit. So set something up that you're shooting at. Now, because you're going to be close, set up lots of individual things that you're going to be shooting at. Print out a piece of paper with dots on it. Make the dots about the size of a thumbtack because that's going to be the apparent size of the whole target at 70. And aim on that. That would be my recommendation. Yeah. Robert's a member at Datus, which is why he lost his, uh, his my, it's my home club. 
which is why he lost his outdoor range. So oh. he could uh, he could roll one of those targets up to the wall and then uh, stick another one on top of it, shoot at 20 yards. You're right. Get the angle replicated, print out some uh, scaled targets and make it work. Yeah. So that it, would be – but the big thing, Robert, is that angle, right? Getting yeah. comfortable with it. I don't even like to blank bail in, uh, unless I can replicate. Yeah. The angle. And that's why I was saying that I think it's a really good idea to set up, like you just said, a reduced size target. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, about the size of a thumbtack is going to be appropriate. And then go for it from there. Um, you know, just don't be pounding arrows into a single spot or, you know, you're going to suffer the consequences there. Um, so, you know, the distance, you know, becomes an issue only if you can't get the height, right? You got to get close enough to get the height. So that's that's what that's about. Uh, Angelo says that Easton offers a Super Drive 25 that seems to have gone over so well that it led to a Super Drive 23. Uh, I shoot the Super Drive 25 and find it to be an exceptional arrow. And in the 3D world, it offers things other 25 size arrows simply do not. With the success of both the Super Drive 23 and Super Drive 25 arrows, might we see a Super Drive 27 arrow soon? Thank you for your time in the podcast. Well, thank you for the question, Angelo. Um, actually, these things uh, happen over a period of years. Uh, we're constantly developing product. And the 23 was actually in development before the 25. But you're right that, you know, we have a SuperDrive 23 and a SuperDrive 25. The logical step is obvious. So, yeah, we'll, uh, we are working on that. Um, time frame, when it's ready. And, mm-hmm. and that's the honest answer. So, yep. Like a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, Jumping around here, um, just heading back up to the top of the questions. Jeff Jenkins has a comment, and um, this is for more germane to American shooters, um, American archery fans, really. Jeff is saying that here in the good old USA, we still can't see the WA event at Berlin. NBC Sports did not seem to cover it. Or if they did, it's so buried I can't find it. That's That one's more likely. WA isn't releasing the video coverage here in the U.S., probably due to contract limitations. So... Um, it was on the Olympic Channel yesterday, and um, it was on NBC, but it is, like you said, Jeff, it's kind of buried. you got to go to NBC's app, uh, like on an iPad, to most easily find this stuff. I, I recognize that it's become kind of a pain in the butt compared to just going to YouTube, but you've got to understand what World Archery is trying to do here, and I think everybody gets it, right? We're trying to make archery less endemic, you know, and, and get it out there to maybe potentially sponsors that might be more interested in you know throwing some money the way of the sport so i think world archery is on the right path but i won't argue with you about how difficult it can be for nbc to you know be accessible um with that said uh you know i there is such a thing as a vpn you can set up a vpn server location in a place where the youtube feed works and that's all i'm saying about that hmm Good idea. Uh, Up a Tree says, great podcast, best information out there. Thank you, thank you. A lot of nice things you're saying here. How do you aim? Do you just concentrate on the target or do you follow the pin? So that's the first part of the question. There's a two-part question. How do you aim? Do you just concentrate on the target or do you follow the pin? We've addressed this before, but the answer differs depending on a couple of factors. First, I'll just address the recurve and then Steve can talk about compound. If that's okay with you, Steve. Yep. For recurve, the canonical thinking is you should focus on the target, let the pin go fuzzy, let it float, 
and execute your shot because recurve is less aiming intensive. Now, the fact is that a lot of top shooters, and this isn't talked about all that much, but a lot of top shooters actually kind of go back and forth. Uh, your Korean shooters, if you, you can actually watch their focus, uh, and you'll notice that it can vary between the pin and the target and go back and forth. So there can be a combination. If you're having trouble executing in good timing, it can be helpful for some people to focus on the pin and let the target go fuzzy, you know, pistol style. And the reason for that is it's psychological. We don't need to get into the weeds with why the psychology works the way it does. But that, the answer to the question is all of them can work depending on the circumstances and what you need. But the textbook answer is focus on the target, let the pin go fuzzy. By the way, you don't need a pin. If you have a ring, you can use an open ring and look at the target and your eye will naturally line up both of those things. The only time that becomes a problem is if you're shooting in the wind and you need to deliberately aim off. So there's plenty of ways to shoot, and you don't need to get too hung up on following on the target or on the pin. Now, the answer is a little different for compound, isn't it, Steve? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I'm probably doing a little bit of both at any given time. A lot of that's probably going to depend on lighting conditions and how well I'm aiming and, and so forth. But, um, you know, I'd say for me, I try to focus mainly on the pin because if I try to focus on the target, I have to move the pin to see the center of the target. So uh, it doesn't work too well when you're constantly peeking around and and uh, moving off. So, you know, I, I, I can't say it's, uh, you know, this in this situation I do this and in this situation I do that, but, you know, generally I'm probably focusing more on the pin. Okay, Alpatree's second part of the question is, how should I properly teach or coach a seven-year-old the basic proper NTS system? NTS being National, national Training system. system. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a thought on it. I'd like to bounce it off of you, Steve, and see what you think. I'll just say first, I'm, I'm an outsider looking in, but I don't think I would try to do the NTS system with a kid. I don't think they're strong enough to do that. I'm afraid that my answer has to be the same, and I'll, I'll say why. First, I think it does require a certain degree of strength that a seven-year-old won't have developed. I don't know if it's a great idea from the standpoint of potentially inducing an injury or other, other things. I'm not a physio guy. I can't you know, speak to that. But what I will say is a seven-year-old needs to have fun if you want him in archery. Mm-hmm. You know, a typical American seven-year-old anyway, not your disciplined <laughs> Korean kid, right? So your, your typical seven-year-old is going to want to have fun. Teach them proper T-form. Teach them to get their elbow in proper alignment, get that front arm in proper alignment, and execute with good timing. Yeah. Don't put too much weight on the bow. Don't throw a huge stabilizer on there. Don't put them on a bow that's too heavy for their physique, you know, mass weight-wise. And let them have fun. I don't think NTS is necessary until they've already developed some form. Then you can go in and you can make some refinements to the form. But watch how a Korean shoots. You don't need to complicate this, okay? Don't complicate it. Yeah, I'd say a Korean woman because they're generally, they're, they come to full draw, they're, they're maybe two seconds, maybe three. Sometimes they're there, it seems like half a second, the arrow's gone. Um, it is consistent, though. Yeah, the issue with teaching a kid that in my head is 
the kids will eventually just pull it back, and when they hit full draw, they'll let it go. They'll develop a, a snapshot. Yeah, so you got to teach them one to be patient, and and two to have timing. Now, are there seven year olds out there that can be taught NTS and can profit from it by being better shooters down the road? Probably, but you know your your average seven year old or even a one that's got talent in archery. Let them have fun and let them shoot with good form to start with because once they have good fundamental form, switching over to whatever NTS evolves to by the time they're old enough for it to matter yeah, should be easier. NTS could be gone in any day, really. Oh, I don't think it'll be gone, but I think it's evolving all the time. Yeah. So what you teach them now might change in five years. Well, you never know. You get a new national head coach and he can wipe it out. It's possible, but not not anytime soon. So, um, Let's see. We've got a question from from Paul Tedford, which is a very good question in my opinion. Steve, and I want to get your thoughts on this. UCN Bolt didn't just go to the track and run 100-meter races against the clock all day. So why do we only practice the way tournaments are? Is there anything else we could work on to improve our game? Awesome question. Yeah. Lots is the answer. And Paul, I, you know, let's start with the mental side of things visualization of shooting has just as much impact on your ability mentally as anything else visualize good shots in your in your downtime you know think about the whole execution phase sit there, sit in a quiet place close your eyes think about what it's like to shoot you know smell the field feel the sun feel the wind think about maybe the crowd making noise and visualize making good shots I know that sounds, you know, maybe a little hokey, but it really works. Ask any really accomplished, you know, Olympic-level shooter, and most of them will tell you visualization is a powerful tool that they use frequently because your subconscious doesn't know the difference between a vividly imagined very good shot and actually performing one. So that's one aspect of things. From a physical standpoint, um shoot shoot off arrows practice shooting shoot off arrows and then walk down there and get them shoot one arrow in your case at 50 meters and walk down there and get it make it count it doesn't have to be just standing there and pounding arrows all day it has to be making yourself mentally adjusted and at your level Paul and at your level Steve it's completely mental you know I mean the physical aspect of it's important to be sure but it's your mental game that's getting you to the podium. And yeah, so very much so. That's my that's my two cents on the subject. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, he mentions Usain Bolt. A guy like him is going to train one his technique, which is basically going to be you know coming out of the blocks. Two, his uh, sprint endurance, his ability to to stay at full speed as long as possible, and then three, his actual sprint speed. So uh, we don't have those phases in archery, but. Um, you know, you can break them down into you, you're going to train your ability to hold more weight on the bow, or you're going to train your ability to uh, extend your shot process longer if need be, so that if you're shooting in the wind or something like that and you have to hold longer, that you don't break down as quickly. Uh, and you can uh, train your ability to execute the release, which to me would be like coming out of the blocks. Um, so there's all those things. And, and, you know, everyone has drills on how you can do that. Um, 
another, you know, another thing, and this is what I'm going to be doing probably the next two weeks is, uh, shooting under a 20 second clock constantly. So that just preps you for a finals match. Um, you know, and that, uh, it's never been a, a huge issue of mine, 20 second clock, but sometimes you get a, a bad one going and you, you can't let down. You gotta, you gotta stick it out. So it's good to, good to have that training. So when I'm working with students in, in Japan, we do, um, you know, we, we call it timing training, but really it's shooting against the clock, shooting under pressure and, uh, learning the confidence that comes from knowing that you can get up there with seven seconds left on the clock, execute a proper shot without panicking, without, you know, getting caught up in the time pressure and have it go in the middle. And so that's another technique that can be used to try to proof yourself against tournament pressure. Lots on this subject, and Paul, I think that that's a great question that, you know, you could devote a whole podcast to this question, um, yeah. honestly. you know, And, and you're going to get, if you get five different top shooters in a room, you're going to get 50 different methods, mm-hmm. all of which are valid for for some people. Yeah, and it, it goes, something like that goes all the way back to equipment prep and things like that too. So sure. there's a lot in, in that question. And, and Paul's not asking for you know for himself he's asking because it's a good question well clearly because paul's on the podium as much as he is it's just a great contribution to the show thank you paul for the question ken uh has some very nice things to say about the podcast thank you ken um his question pertains to removing inserts from ac shafts that have either been glued or epoxied in uh with either ca glue uh cyanoacrylate glue super glue or epoxy um, so he says he's had good luck in the past with a drill bit that closely matches the inertial, the internal diameter of the arrow. He's using it inertially. He's taking the drill bit and whipping the arrow and making it whack the insert and maybe busting it loose. And that's probably going to be okay on CA. The problem with epoxy is it has enough toughness that it doesn't necessarily want to break. But one thing epoxy is somewhat weak against, that is your off-the-shelf epoxies, what somewhat weak against is boiling water can... Um, defeat some epoxy and you with a set of shafts in good condition that haven't been dinged or damaged you should be able to get away with you know trying boiling water for that purpose and then maybe combine that with your drill bit idea or get a piece of welding rod and use that to tap out the the insert would pouring little mek methyl ethyl ketone or acetone help without damaging the carbon they're not going to damage the carbon but i don't think they're going to touch um, either of those adhesive systems. The only thing that really is quick and decisive against CA is nitromethane, and I don't recommend throwing that in the arrow. Um, so, also wants to know if uh, setting the tip of the shaft in dry ice, causing the insert to contract at a different rate of the shaft and break the bond, no, I don't think that's going to help. Even liquid nitrogen probably wouldn't do it. So the biggest suggestion would be uh, try boiling water in the case of epoxy. In the case of cyanoacrylate, your inertia method probably will work because most CAs are not tough enough to withstand that that kind of thing. Uh, Travis uh, is asking the question, as a general rule of thumb, when can you trust your rangefinder's algorithm? When do you abandon the rangefinder's algorithm, extreme ranges, and extreme angles? I'm presuming here that Travis is talking about a rangefinder with a goinometer built mm-hmm. in for the cut so uh, for people who don't know what we're talking about if you're shooting field use a rangefinder on a target that's above you or below you because of trigonometry 
the actual distance to the target is not the same as the path the arrow will follow. And so you're going to have to remove or add, or always remove, never add, remove some distance depending on the angle. The more radical the angle, the more the distance you remove. So that being the case, Steve, have you run into uh, anything like this where your rangefinder, I mean, we don't use them in competition, but do you use a rangefinder with a goinometer to start with? Yeah, I'll use them in, in practice and in uh, NFAA competition where they are allowed. Yeah. Um, I What I have found is on a good rangefinder, say the loophole, I think that one's got the best characteristics of all of them. Um, the, the cuts work very well out to about 25 degrees. Past that, I use the cut chart off of Archer's Advantage, and they're never going to be that far off. And for someone with a bow speed like mine, it's not a huge deal. Um, I know Travis has a young daughter. Someone with a bow speed like hers, when you start talking a half yard difference, that's where you have to be accurate. So um, I would say, you know, if you're if you're concerned about it, um, when you print your tape off of or your sight marks off of Archer's Advantage, you can also print that cut chart, and that's a, a good thing to carry with you. As long as you're not shooting a WA event. Yeah, yeah, you can't have it in a WA event. So Travis be, is, uh, uh, yeah, Travis is also asking uh, what affects cuts from one archer to another, arrow mass, arrow velocity, peep height, etc. It's uh, mostly velocity. Yeah, that's the biggest one. Be- inside of you know, normal field archery ranges, distances. Yeah, there's others, you know, like blade sag and things like that. But that's something you can't calculate. Yeah. You have to go figure it out. We don't have blade sag and recurve, but that's definitely a factor for compound. There's a nugget a lot of people don't think about. No, nobody thinks about that. So do you ever go to a thicker blade just because of that factor? I did it, yeah. I I usually shoot a short blade um, for field, and I tried a a thicker one. It didn't shoot very well, so I just went and figured it out. It it was really um, short downhill shots, bunny shots, where uh, I just had to go figure out what I needed to do, and that's probably for the best anyways because then you actually practice them. Just so people understand, on a downhill, if you have a, say, an 8-thou blade, I don't know if anybody even shoots an 8-thou blade, but if you had an 8-thou blade instead of, a, say, a 12-thou blade on your compound launcher and you were at a very radical downhill, the gravity vector would cause that blade to act as if it were stiffer. The arrow would actually ride up a little higher. Yeah, it'd lift up. And, yeah, at that point, I mean, I first discovered I had one where I uh, felt like I needed to take about a turn and a half off the site, and I ended up going um, three and a half turns thereabouts. So I was trying something at that time with a, a longer, pretty pretty light blade, and uh, had to abandon that. But you know, so if, there might be people using dropaways, and they won't have to factor that in. Um, just something, honestly, you need to go and, and figure out. I think the range finders and the cut charts do really well for anything within your marks, anything under that, meaning the marks you shot in, which for most people is going to be 20 or 30 yards out to, you know, 70 or whatever. Um, if you're talking, you've got a 10 yard or a 10 meter bunny, that's 35 degrees. You better know how to shoot that because the chart's not going to tell you what to do. And there's other issues where, you know, say you have a one yard cut or, or, a a two or three yard cut from like 12 to 15 that might only be you know that might be a 20 degree angle or so um 
maybe a little more. And your your marks might say you need to move up eight clicks or sometimes even down. It'll tell you you need to move down just based off where you're at in your trajectory. Um, you just got to know better. You have to know it and understand what you have to do put the arrow on the dot so we had an issue with that at opa a lot of guys had no idea what to do it was i think it was about a 14 yarder that cut to 11 something like that for a lot of people you actually move your sight down because of parallax as much yeah. as anything else at that distance right and you really needed you needed to move your side up about 15 clicks um some people a little more and uh, if you went off what your chart told you you were going to miss way out the top so that's where experience comes in yeah the best way to do it is figure out your line of sight then your angle and know what that needs what you need to remove not in yardage but in turns or clicks from from your line of sight measurement in other words your your parallax compensation has to be independently you know derived versus your actual range drop because one's one is a optical effect and the other one is a function of the velocity of the arrow and the trajectory and everything else right so you got to keep those two factors in mind when you get inside say of 15 yards for a lot of people yeah yeah that's where it causes some issues all right so that's a valuable insight into the world of the dermeisterschaft (laughs) all right Steve, you've talked about, uh, Cody says, that you've talked about your stabilizer setup having equal amounts of weight on both the front and back bars. Is there anything special you do with the bow itself to make it easier to shoot with that much weight on the front? Uh, I'm not equal. I'm about 18 on the front. And Let me just explain 25. one thing. Front means the side toward the target in the context of this question. <laughs> yeah. But it is actually the back of the bow. Yeah, so I'm not getting to that debate. I know. I'm just. It's not a debate. This, there's not a matter of debate. The the front of the bow is the side facing the archer, and the back of the bow is the side facing the target. But we know what Cody means. I don't know. So, My steering wheel is in front of me, but the back of the car is behind me. I'm not going to change <laughs> 500 years of archery terminology for I you. I will. I will change it I'm because not I'm right, and everyone else in the world is wrong. That's why you're the world champion. All right. Cody. Sorry, I came off the wheels on that, but I mean, I just I, we need to make this clear because we've got all kinds of people. We got half the faction out there screaming at us. You mean back of the bow? And you got half the people out there don't know what the heck we're talking about. So I, I think it's funny because most of that faction going, "Well, this is the back of the bow," calls it a front bar and a back bar. So they contradict themselves because they are wrong, and I am right. And I will the back agree of the that car they contradict themselves. Is the rear bumper? And I stand, I sit behind the steering wheel. I agree that people do contradict themselves on this particular matter. Did we actually answer the question? No, I was getting it. I said, I, I don't have uh, equal weight. I have 18 and about 25. So there's a little more on the back. But is there other stuff you do with the bow to uh, make it compensate for, let's say, uh, stabilizer bias? Do you change cam timing? Do you do other stuff? No. I mean, you, you just get accustomed to shooting the bow and the with the balance you want out of it so so make the balance work for the bow yeah for you mm-hmm. yeah i mean if you need uh if you need to take out some front waggle you need front weight if that makes it too hard then go to a longer bar all righty so there's Malcolm. a lot of you know it's just just countering any physics that you need to counter all right malcolm says good luck good luck in rome by the way um, Malcolm says that having reduced the number of X10s I use for field down to five, 
I have decided to make up the rest of a set of pro fields that I've had in my bag for the last year. I've gone for 470s on a Pro Edge Elite 27-inch draw length, 57 pounds. Usually have my arrows cut 26 and a quarter, which puts me in, puts me an inch over the maximum cut for the 470s. These are pro fields. They don't have a maximum cut. Yeah, they're parallel. Yeah, so you're good. Yep. Don't worry about it. Um, now, if he's actually make it, made a mistake and meant to say pro tours, mm. let's just presume for a moment that that's the case because he did say pro fields, but let's say he actually meant pro tours. If you meant pro tours, Malcolm, just in case, uh, no, don't cut anything off the back. Just uh, You can get away with an inch past the max cut. You can get away with it. All right? Tim Campbell. Uh, for using your arrow selection charts, the correct target arrow length to use is one inch in front of where the arrow contacts the arrow rest. But how should I interpret the selection charts if I want to use a slightly longer arrow than this? For example, say my correct arrow length is 29. If I want to use a 29 and a half or 30 inch arrow length instead, how do I interpret the chart? Um, go to that column of the chart. Yeah, you just move from 29 to 30. Yeah, yep. and that'll take care of you. Um, and in terms of how it affects ACEs, not much, honestly. Don't don't be looking at the next higher spine group. Uh, remember that little letter R is what goes for a recurve, by the way. If you see just a number and there's no R next to it, that's for general use. For a recurve, go with the one with the R next to it in the column. Ryan, I'm going to get into field archery next season. I shoot a Hoyt Prevail 37 with the SVX cam at 60. 60 pounds and a 26 inch draw length what would be a good arrow for this uh given that the pro tours are a little out of his budget range but he still wants a good arrow carbon mm. one's a good arrow yeah that draw length uh, you got a lot of options in acg as well i mean i'm assuming he's going to be around uh probably if 520 spine yeah so something like that yeah either one yeah you know whatever fits your budget ryan and you know both of them will perform just fine Yep. So Carbon 1 or ACG. Daniel Coe, looking for some Triumph arrows for indoors, uh, pulling 42 pounds on the fingers recurve and about 29 and a half inch draw, looking at a 500 spine and 4 inch feathers, but what point weight should I go to with a choice of 125, 150, 175, or 200? So 42 pounds, a little on the light side for a 500 parallel shaft. I'd go for the heavier point weight. I'd go for the 200. And I'm not sure that would actually tune, just so you're aware, Daniel. Be w- beware, that might not work. Um, throw a biter knock in there if you need to weaken it up a bit. You know, that might help. Ryan Reed, Steve, if aluminum arrows were not an option for Vegas, what would you recommend when setting up an arrow like a full bore? Compound, 28-inch draw, 60 pounds, Bowtech Fanatic 3.0. Arrow length, point weight, and fletching. So, uh, I shot some full bores out of at Vegas. I actually, shot my highest ever X count at Vegas. With Sergio Pony won with full yeah. bores. Um, I went with the full bore two seventy, which I think everybody should actually try. Um, I did you know thirty one inches or so and two hundred fifty grain points. I tried two hundred grain point and two fifty, and the two fifty just shot better. Um, and I think. Uh, for a lot of people, that setup would probably work pretty well. You could you could even try cutting them short and just go ultra stiff and roll with that. Uh, I've seen people do it. I, I don't know that I like it, but it works for a 20-yard indoor round. So um, 
Yeah, I, I would try somewhere around 30, 31 inches with 250 up front. That'd be my starting point. All right. Good call there. Um, so thank you for the question, Ryan. Uh, Matthew is asking an interesting question. Matthew points out that in the last couple of podcasts, you, Steve, have mentioned that the 50-meter round ought to be put back to 70 meters because the cream doesn't always rise to the top. And just to recap this, Steve's feeling has been expressed as you need a 710 these days out of 720 to really do anything in that 50-meter round in normal weather. And I'll point out in normal weather, not like nationals. And as a result, you're, you know, you're looking at guys in 20th place that are within a couple points of the guys in third place. And it's not enough differentiation. It's not hard enough for some of these compound shooters to gather some momentum over the rest of the field. So yeah, your, and it's, uh, your concept was a 90-something centimeter target at 70 meters, for example. Yeah. You know, it's not even over the course of you know, 72 arrows. It's more over the course of 15. So for for, a, for a final yeah for a final round or a head to head an elimination round, so um, with that same mindset, do you think the Vegas round should be pushed back as well? Vegas, no. Vegas is. I, I've only seen one time where I thought, eh, that guy. You know, maybe a couple times in the last ten years where an accidental winner happened, and even then they're good shooters. Um, I would say X count could be used to separate people before you'd need to move things back. Well, the thing about Vegas is it's a don't miss tournament to get into a don't miss shoot off. So, in your category, yeah. Yeah. The other consideration is there's an awful lot of club shooters, an awful lot of recreational shooters, and an awful lot of people that just want to enjoy archery going to Vegas. Don't make it harder for them. That would be my argument. I would uh, argue you could move it back for World Archery Indoor, though. I won't argue that, but that's Especially, a world archery thing. I, I mean, what you should really do for world archery in all categories is uh, stop doing head-to-head eliminations until you hit the top eight. Take the top half of the scores and advance those guys. That's how you keep the best shooters at the top. There's what will happen if Steve Anderson ever takes over Tom Dillon's job. Well, I think it's actually uh, being talked about by them. I never suggested it. So Good enough. Yep. Uh, Spencer Yee, our friend down in Arizona. Uh, we all suffered from the really fun wind conditions at USA Archery Outdoor Nationals on the second 72 arrow round on day two. Other than the obvious, by using a skinny arrow as the base to build around, how would you build the best arrow in the wind for compound and recurve? Fundamental stuff. Yeah. Um, first off, there's a reason why every Korean shooter that you see is generally using a 100, 110, or 120 grain point in an X10 or a Pro Tour on a compound side and is using spin wing veins on the compound on the recurve side and on the uh, compound side, something like a tight flight. Maximum two inch. See, fundamentally, we know that the, the smallest diameter arrow is going to drift least, but also it weighs more. X10s and Pro Tours are heavier on purpose. Because they carry more energy, they work better in the wind. And that is, you know, well proven over the last 25 years. Right. So from that standpoint, um, you know, don't put too much point weight in there because you start fooling around with FOC numbers that are excessive and you're going to end up with arrows that dive at 70 meters. You don't need to worry about it quite so much at 50. 
We make a 140 grain tungsten point. We do not recommend it for recurve shooters at 70 meters, and the reason is because they're too heavy. For compound, 50 meters, no problem. So go to a heavy point, go to the smallest arrow you can you can get, and don't put too much fletching on there. Don't go don't go crazy with big fletching. That's about it. All right. Sean is saying well, let me back up. Uh because we're gonna save Sean for last here. Uh Andy, since the invention of archery, what do you think is the most significant improvement to the activity and why? I'm not sure it's improved. <laughs> oh. I'm going to say the um, the most significant improvement to the activity is the near universal availability of archery thanks to affordable equipment because back in the 1930s a dozen arrows would cost you a month's wages and a more or less unified method of shooting in each category. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the uh, from a competitive standpoint, yeah, there is unification and at least on the world archery side, we can actually have a world championship. I was really referring to form and coaching, but yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm referring more to the, you know, organization. Yeah, 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 side. for sure. Um, Having world archery organize archery around the globe has been a significant, yeah. you know, because we all play the same game. Right. It doesn't, doesn't happen that way in 3d. Yeah. We think about it. We can't even play the same game within, within our country. And these are lessons that have been learned over and over again. Why was archery taken out of the Olympic program in the 1920s? Why? Because no two Olympics were alike up until that point. Right. Right. They had a running boar match for free. I mean, there was all sorts of stuff going on back then and, and no two were the same. Now with, you know, FITA at the time having been organized in the 1930s and creating a codified set of rules everybody plays the same game whether you're in malaysia or maine it doesn't matter you're shooting the same game so having unified rules is important but i also think that having a better understanding of the biomechanics of the sport and having a better understanding of how to shoot the bow and arrow has been a big help you know and and there's obvious stuff like you know you could argue that the the release has been good for compound and i'm not talking about technology i'm really talking about a codified set of rules like Steve brought up and a more or less common way to shoot the bow that works well biomechanically. Those are the two things that I think are the most significant improvements to the activity um, possibly since the invention of the sport. I get with that, yep. Yeah. Uh, is anyone, Rick is asking, is anyone still shooting the 2712s in the pro circuit? Basically uh, everybody. Basically yeah. everybody, yeah. <laughs> Um, it hasn't changed. Yeah, has not changed and probably won't change anytime soon. Uh, RJ is asking, how did Steve get so good at shooting steep angles if he doesn't really practice that much? Well, we talked about it a little bit earlier. I've practiced enough to know. And you do the math in your head. Yep. All right. So I'm going to finish with Sean's question. Did Steve Anderson buy Braden chocolate or vanilla ice cream after losing the closest to Spider shoot-off? Well, I didn't lose it. We had three judges check it. They all determined it would go to another shoot-off, which I won. On practice day in Berlin. if you looked at the good photos, you would realize his arrow was sitting in a hole and was not, in fact, closer to center. But no one saw those. (laughs) There's a certain amount of bitterness I can detect it right now. (laughs) So who bought the chocolate ice cream? He owes me. He didn't buy you ice cream. He owes you ice cream. He owes me. So is it going to be chocolate or vanilla? I'll get whatever I want. End of show? End of show. <laughs>